Please turn in God's holy word to the letter of 1 Peter. 1 Peter chapter 1. Our focus will be on verses 13 through 17. I'll be reading verses 3 through 21. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen Him, you love Him. Though you do not now see Him, you believe in Him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls." Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when He predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves but you and the things that have now been announced to you through those who preached the gospel new, through those who preached the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven things into which angels long to look. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as He who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, since it is written, You shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on Him as Father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout your time of exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through Him are believers in God, who raised Him from the dead and gave Him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, I pray that we, we would be a people rightly moved to holiness. Not a facade of holiness or an act of holiness or any kind of works righteousness whereby we try to merit any kind of favor or grace before You. But as a response of gratitude and faith and love for one who has so redeemed us in Christ. 
In Jesus' name I pray, amen. In the original language again, the verses we've been studying, verses 3 through 12, form a single elephantine sentence. Some sentences really should run on. They really should be so big. Brevity, clarity, simplicity are virtues, but there are thoughts so vast, so deep, so glorious that a simple sentence would be an injustice. It would be, a, it would be almost sinful to try to speak of something as glorious as Peter has taken up in just a few words. I do think that such run-on sentences will be quite commonplace when we come into this glorious inheritance. They will run on and on and on for eternity and we will still have thought them too few to speak of the inexpressible glory that we then enjoy. Peter is rejoicing in God's salvation in all of its fullness. You need full, big sentences to do that. But having devoured that sentence chunk by chunk, you should be ready to burn some calories. And so we come to verse 13 and we transition from exultation to exhortation. From speaking of what God has done to now it's time for us to work. Having fed upon this feast of Christ, we're ready to burn these calories. Note, and do not miss this, that the exhortation only comes upon the foundation of this exaltation. Therefore, sentences have moods. Your Bible is moody. You need to be ready to, and not in any kind of bad way, in a glorious way. And you need to be uh, trained to see these kind of mood shifts and understand how they work. Sentences have moods. The, this large elephantine sentence is in the indicative mood. It indicates, it states facts. The sentences that we're going to take up this morning are all in the imperative mood. They're commands. In English, we speak of different kinds of sentences the way we talk of this. Two of those kinds of sentences being declarative and imperative. Verses 3 through 12 are one large declarative sentence. It declares something, and what it declares is the gospel. Good news, not good advice, but good news. It's an announcement. It's something that has been done. It's not telling you to do something. Search verses 3 through 12 for a command. You won't find it there. It's a declaration. What's so vital to understanding these moods, these different kinds of sentences is to see how they relate to one another. And you have to see this therefore in verse 13, and you have to understand that it's always there between the indicative and the imperative. It's there every time, explicitly or implicitly, it's always there. So let me give you an example that's often overlooked. Whenever you think about commandments in the Bible, no doubt among the first to be conjured up in your mind, are the Ten Commandments or the Ten Words. But how often do people forget the preface? 
I am Yahweh your God, who called you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. Do you see the therefore that's implicitly understood to lie between the indicative and the imperative? Same exact kind of sentences there. Not I will be Yahweh your God. I am Yahweh your God. Not I will redeem you if, but I have redeemed you therefore. You shall have no other gods before me. In his excellent commentary on 1 Peter, Thomas Schreiner writes, God's commands are always rooted in His grace. Another way of putting this is to say that the indicative, what God has done for us in Christ, is always the basis of the imperative, how we should live our lives. To confuse the order here would be disastrous. And the results would be works righteousness instead of seeing holiness as the result of God's grace and power as a response to the love of God in Christ. As the commands of God are planted in the soil of God's grace to us in Christ, they are a tree of life. And that's precisely where God has planted them. But when we try to take the commands of God as we receive them in the Scriptures and plant them somewhere else, when we try to do that, it will only bear poisonous apples of self-righteousness or self-condemnation. You will either find that you fool yourself into thinking that you keep the law and become arrogant, or you will rightly see that the law is meant to be a schoolmaster to drive you to Christ as you have no righteousness of your own. Here, you're not told to live a certain way for salvation. You're told to live a certain way because of salvation. Sinner, if your life has been nothing but one long, stuttering, incomplete, imperative sentence where you're trying to do, you need to hear this gospel declaration and gospel exclamation. What you cannot do, Christ did. That Christ came and lived righteously as a substitute so that all who believe get His righteousness counted as theirs. And He died in the stead of sinners so that those who trust in Him might receive forgiveness of sins. Because the wrath of God has already been satisfied for those very sins. In these sentences, you have three commands. But do not miss the therefore. It's built on that good news. It's not so that you might know this Christ and receive this Christ. It's because you know and have received Him that these commands then come. And with each of these commands, they're buried in the sentence. And so we need to be clear about what the main verb is, what the command itself is, and what are the modifiers. And particularly, it's easy to mix up the commands with the participle phrases, the, the verbs ending with ing, these participle phrases that are meant to modify the commands themselves. 
So you have these three commands. They're all buried, and what you'll find is that each time they're buried in grace. Now, the first command is to set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Do you see how sweet the commands of God are in Christ? Let this command inform you how every command comes from your heavenly Father. Set your hope on the grace of God that is yours in Jesus Christ. Do you see? This is how all the commands in Scripture, this is the Word of God. Does the unbelieving world lie under the law of God? Yes. But they can't keep it. As you have the Scriptures, they are the Word of God to the people of God. And as the commands come to you from this book to you as His people, this is the way they all come. Set your hope on the grace of God that is yours. They all come in that kind of context. It's something that unbelievers can't do. They don't have this hope. They don't have this grace. They don't stand in it. The therefore hasn't been established in their case. But this is the way the commands of God come to you. Therefore, set your hope on the grace. Only those who have this future can obey this command. Now, hope is used here in a subjective sense. I argued that it was used in the objective sense in verse 3. The living hope spoken of there that God caused us to be born again to is the inheritance, verse 4, is the salvation ready to be revealed at the last time, verse 5. So hope there is the thing that is hoped in. It's objective. Now here, it's subjective. Set your hope. Now what is hope in the subjective sense? Well, it's one of the three Christian virtues, the chief Christian virtues held forth in 1 Corinthians 13. Faith, hope, love. And whenever the world speaks of hope in this subjective sense, they mean a a longed-for desire, a, a, a wishful objective. No matter how improbable it might be, quite often it is to express that the improbability of the outcome that it's spoken of as a wish, as a hope, you see. But Christian hope, biblical hope, is to express conviction, certainty, confidence. John MacArthur writes, in its essence, hope is equivalent to faith. It is trusting God. The major difference between the two attitudes is that faith involves trusting God in the present, whereas hope is future faith, trusting God for what is to come. Faith appropriates what God has already said and done in His revealed Word, and hope anticipates what He will yet do as promised in the Scripture. I think that's very close, really close, and and, uh, yet I don't think that the distinction between faith and hope in, in terms of of time is completely correct in this way. Faith always concerns the future. You may look at what Christ has done in the past, but it's always trusting Him for the next moment. Faith is always future-looking. Faith is the substance of things hoped for, Hebrews tells us. I think it better to say it this way, that hope is an aspect of faith. Just in the same way that, remember when we looked at verse 8, we saw that love and joy... And faith were actually aspects of one another. 
They, they infiltrate and infect one another so that you properly don't understand. The kind of love that you're to express to your heavenly Father is to be the kind of love that has faith and joy mixed up into it. You, you can't define it without the others, you see. In the same way that hope then is an aspect of faith. It's a particular kind of faith, we might even say. When is it proper? Here's the better way to think and get at it. When is it proper to call our love or our faith or our joy hope? And then I think it's really easy to define what hope is and to get a sense and a hold of it. When is it proper to call your love or your joy or your faith hope? Well, when they're directed towards your hope. Whenever, they're, whenever those kind of things are directed toward the objective hope that you have in Christ, then it's proper to refer to your love or your joy or your faith in that instance as hope. Whenever you rejoice in the, in the inheritance that is yours in Christ, that joy is properly called hope. Whenever you love the thought of the appearing of Christ, that love is hope. And whenever your faith is strong in the revelation of Jesus Christ, it's proper to call that faith hope. That's what Peter is calling for you to do here. Set your hope fully on the grace. And you remember that we talked about how the grace is synonymous with the inheritance, is synonymous with the salvation ready to be revealed, which is synonymous with the living hope that God caused us to be born again to. Peter calls for you here to set your hope on the hope. Now, how do you set your hope on something. Well, first, remember this, that this therefore takes us back to this previous sentence, which ended by telling us that the prophets prophesied of the grace that was to be yours. And they did this, not serving themselves, but you. They did this for you, and that you are served by them through the apostolic preaching of Christ as they unfold the Christ spoken of in the Old Testament prophets. Faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of Christ. How do you set your hope on something? What, what is the means that God uses to strengthen and to bolster our faith, our hope, our confidence? Well, as the Spirit-inspired word, which speaks of our objective hope, is taken by the Spirit, we find subjectively our hope and faith and confidence in that objective hope, strengthened, bolstered. As the Scriptures put forth our objective hope, our future, we will find our subjective hope in that future strengthened right now. That's how it happens. But yet Peter puts forward two ways that we are to set our hope. Two, two ways this is acted out, to, this is demonstrated. Setting your hope is, is, it has feet and hands on it. Setting your hope on the grace means preparing our minds for action. That's the first participle phrase you come across here. It comes first. It modifies telling you how you are to set your hope on the grace. You're to set your hope on the grace, preparing your minds for action. You have a footnote in the ESV, which is much better than the translation that you give, that gives it more literally, more accurately. There's an idiom that's lost here. The King James doesn't play around. It just says, gird up the loins of your mind. 
the men of the age wore long garments. When it came time for work or war, you would gird up your loins. You would take the garment, pull it up, tuck it in your belt so that you could move more freely. This was a war metaphor. That's the way it's used in Ephesians, where you're given the armor of God. And again, you have to go to the King James or the RSV to get it. But you're told there, stand therefore having the lo- your loins girt about with truth. What's peculiar here is that Peter is calling for the mind to be girded up. In the mid-90s, Martin Knoll, his book, The Scandal of the Evangelical Mind, was published. In which he lamented, the scandal of the evangelical mind is that there's not much of an evangelical mind. That wasn't always the case. That's not our Protestant heritage. What happened was whenever secularism began to attack uh, more openly, more violently, and from within the church, the church responded largely with either theological liberalism compromising or fundamentalist anti-intellectualism or evangelical emphasis on the emotion and the experience. And the mind was put aside. Today, many churches, how often is this the experience that you bypass the mind to go straight for the heart, the experience, the emotions? We have a word for that. It's called manipulation. R.C. Sproul comments, We're living in a period of church history that may be classified as mindless. It is is an anti-intellectual period of Christian history. Not anti-scientific or anti-technological or even anti-educational, but anti-mind. While teaching in a seminary classroom, I would sometimes ask a student what he thought about a particular proposition. The student would sometimes respond, I feel that statement is incorrect. I would stop him and say, I didn't ask how you felt. I wasn't inquiring into your emotional response. I was asking you what you think about it. Our minds are not prepared for action and thus we're driven about by every wind of doctrine. We have an insatiable hunger for amusement, for not thinking, just entertain me. In the 80s, Neil Postman wrote his book, Amusing Ourselves to Death, in which he observed the the effects of modern media upon our minds. And he was speaking about the culture at large, but how sad that everything he predicted, it's, it's a prophetic book in that sense, that what he predicted is so true in the church, the church of the book, that she would be so consumed with the latest fad. Likewise, the other way that you're to, and and harmonious with this, the other way you're to set your hope fully on the grace is by being sober-minded. The ESV does there capture the idiom that so many others miss, sober-minded. Setting your hope 
on the grace that is to be yours at the revelation of Jesus Christ doesn't mean being aloof, detached, uh, uh, out of touch with reality. It doesn't mean living in some kind of delusion. Rather, it means living in this world as it really is, not being foiled, not being in the dark. It's the world that is drunk. It's the world that lives in some kind of delusion. It's the world that's inebriated with false hope. They live in some world where they declare with their lives, there is no God. And one day they will have to wake up. Edmund Clowney says, to be sober is to be realistic. Drunkenness brings delusions before stupor sets in. The hallucinations of spiritual drunkenness are not amusing pink elephants, but devouring monsters. The ideologies of political oppression. The fantasies of sexual lust. The jealous hatreds of personal spite. That's the delusion. The world is toxically intoxicated. This world is living a dream. But one day the sun will shine forth in all of His glory and they can keep their eyes closed no longer. And an eternal reality of a nightmare will set in. We are called to live as children of light in a time of darkness. This means being sober-minded not being deluded ourselves. Now, the next command may seem different, but as it unfolds, I think you'll see how single, how unified all these commands are. Be holy, verse 15, in all your conduct. Now, what does it mean to be holy? I think a, if you took a poll, the majority position would, would say moral purity. Now, that's only secondary. That's only... That's only far down the line of what holiness means. Primarily, holiness means being separate, other, distinct, set apart. That's the best way to say it. Holiness is that which is set apart. God is the supremely holy one. There's no one else in His class. He's it. He's set apart. G.K. Bill and D.A. Carson say there are concentric circles of holiness, and at the center, most holy is God. They write, holy is almost an adjective for God. God alone is God. God alone is holy. To quote the beloved Sproul one more time, who so emphasized this doctrine. Our God is the thrice holy God. It's the only Adjective that's raised to the third degree. Holy, holy, holy. There is no other like Him. Priests, animals, utensils even were said to be holy as they were consecrated. Same root word. They were set apart unto God. The holy God made things holy. Things were holy as they related to Him, when they were set apart by Him, by the Holy God, they were deemed holy. We, 2 in verse 9, are a holy nation because first He tells us we are a chosen people. Having been chosen by God, you're then set apart from others. 
Holy living then is identical with living as an exile, an elect exile. It means you're different, you're set apart, you're not from here. It's identical to 2.11 being a sojourner. This means setting your hope on the grace that is to be yours. You see, holy living, this call to be holy as God is holy, is nearly identical with the call to set your hope fully on the grace that is to be yours at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Or we could say, perhaps better, that holy living demonstrates one has set their hope on the grace that is to be revealed. We're told to be holy as our God is holy. That command is found four times in Leviticus. Just consider that. When was that book received by the people of God? Well, they've been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. And they were en route to the land promised them. They were wandering in a wilderness as sojourners. And to prepare them for living in that land, He says to them while they are in the wilderness, Be holy as I am holy. That's how the command comes to us. As we are sojourners, having been redeemed by this precious blood, let us live as residents, as citizens of that which was purchased for us. Note the two ways that Peter frames this command. You're told to do this as obedient children, verse 14, and as he who called us, you as holy, verse 15. This call is the effectual call that we saw in verse 3, where God causes us to be born again. He causes it. He doesn't put forward the opportunity if you want to. He makes it happen. He causes you to be born again. That same call is spoken of in 2 and verse 9, where God calls you out of darkness and into His marvelous light. The way that that's spoken of elsewhere in Scripture by Paul is akin to the way that God spoke in creation. Let there be light. There is no light, and He causes it effectually. No one prevents it. No one stops it. He wants it to happen, and it's done. You're called out of darkness into light. In chapter 5 and verse 10, you're told that the God of all grace called you unto His eternal glory by Christ Jesus. He did this in Christ. All of it was accomplished so that in time, whenever He deemed it proper, it happened. You're to do this as He who called you is holy, and you're to do this as obedient children, graciously adopted in Christ. I told you that the commands were buried in each sentence. And do you see how they're buried in grace? Do you see this as obedient children and as He who called you is holy? Do you see how that's the same gospel therefore? Be holy as obedient children, as He who called you is holy. And again, you have a modifying participle. But again, you have to go to the King James or the New King James to really see it. As obedient children, not fashioning, or the New King James, not conforming yourselves according to the former lust in your ignorance. So be holy in the modifier, not conforming. It tells you how to be holy, the negative aspect of it. Be holy, not conforming. As exiles, as sojourners, as aliens, we are to be non-conformist. 
When are we going to stop trying to be cool according to their standards? The passions of your former ignorance is another big link with the previous command. The passions of your former ignorance. Former ignorance goes back to sober-minded, which is the opposite of it. And passions, these passions stand in contrast to our new experience, which is one of setting our hope our affections, our heart, on the grace that is to be ours. Now, heightening that link, the only other place in all the New Testament where the word that you have here is conforming is used, is used by Paul in Romans 12, 1 and 2. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Ephesians 2.3 tells us that we once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. That was our once. That was our former ignorance. But now, because of Christ, it's time for us to be sober-minded. You see how intertwined these commands are? How single, how unified. And because that's so, you can draw this conclusion. Setting our hope on the grace is an act that calls for the whole of us. Mind. Affections, emotions, and our body, our actions. It calls for your intellect, your emotions, and your volition. It demands the whole of you. Do you you see in this command, set your hope? God even commands your emotions. And the reason He can do that is because He's made you a new creation in Christ with a new heart. He commands and He demands the whole of you, but all of those commands fall upon His grace. Also, do you see that hope-filled living is holy living? Living with your heart set on the future doesn't mean abandoning the present. It actually means living holy right now. It means really living right now. Now, not escapist, but actually living in the moment, right now. It means a life that's separated from this world that's fading. And actually living in the here and now, in the world that is to come, and that will never end. But what do you do with this last command? Conduct yourselves with fear. Well, note that Peter hasn't left his theme. Conduct yourselves with fear throughout your time of exile. This fear here isn't contrary to the hope and the joy and the faith and the love that has been spoken of so recurringly in the previous sentence. It harmonizes with it. Further, 
you see that it's conditioned upon grace once again if you call on Him as Father. Once again, this command is buried in grace. You have the same gospel, therefore. This is not the craven fear of a convicted criminal. This is the reverence of a son. It's a fear that's related to God as judge, but it's a fear that sees God as a judge understanding that the judge is our father and we as children. But it's a fear related to this aspect as well, that he judges impartially. What does that mean? There are two groups of two texts that fill out what impartiality in God's judgment really means. They, they make it clear. The first set is Acts 20.34 and Romans 2.11. And in both of those instances, God's impartiality concerns Jew and Gentile. That you're not going to get some kind of special favor before God in, in this judgment just because you're a Jew. And the other pair of texts comes in Ephesians 6.9 and Colossians 3.25. In those instances, it's the slave-master relationship that's put forward. And it goes both ways in that instance. You're not to think that you have some kind of special position with God just because of your lot. Whenever you appear before God, what He will look at are your works. Now, what is this judgment spoken of here? I think it goes back to what you saw in verse 7 that there is this glory and honor and praise that will be bestowed on us at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So you go to Romans 2, 6 and 11, and there you read, He will render to each one according to his works. To those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and mortality, He will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil. The Jew first and also the Greek. But glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good. The Jew first and also the Greek. For God shows no partiality. Do you see the links? It's this judgment. There, there's this ultimate judgment that separates sheep and goats. But whenever you've got that ultimate judgment... Based upon the righteousness of Jesus Christ, He will render to each one according to their deeds. And for the sheep, according to their deeds, there will be glory and honor and peace. 2 Corinthians 5, 9-10 says, Whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please Him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what, it is, what is His due for what He has done in the body, whether good or evil. Finally, I think most clarifying for you might be 1 Corinthians 3, 10-15. According to the grace of God given to me, Paul says, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation and someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds upon it, for no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. He's saying that all works. This, he's putting forth the same gospel, therefore, you see. It's only whenever Christ is laid that the commands of God come as further grace. But for those who do, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones... Wood, hay, straw. Do you see two groups of three there? 
each one's work will become manifest. For the day will disclose it because it will be revealed by fire. And the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. Let's go back in Peter at this point. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials. Verse 7, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in glory and honor and praise at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Resume Corinthians. If the work that anyone has done, that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. The kind of fear and reverence that's spoken of here is that of a child that not selfishly wants praise and glory and honor to attract attention to itself, but it's that of a child who so loves their father that the thought of pleasing him is their heart's desire. The thought of laboring in hearing well done, not to center on self, but as knowing I pleased my heavenly Father is the heartbeat of this passage. This fear is a longing for an inheritance rich in glory and honor and praise at the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ from our Father. And this fear is appropriate during our time of exile. Before you enter into the fullness of your salvation, that's when this fear is most appropriate. Fear means being obedient children during this time of sojourning. Go to Hebrews 2 this afternoon and recall the Hebrew children who did not enter into the promised land because they had no faith. And that was demonstrated again and again in their sojourning. What's being demonstrated in your life in light of these commands? Are you trying to build upon grace and finding out there's no grace there? You're trying to do. And Christ has never really done this work of salvation in you. Lay your deadly doing down, as one poet expressed it. And throw yourself in trust and confidence on Christ. Just because you are a Jew, just because you go to church, just because you've been baptized, just because you walked an aisle, just because you said a prayer, there's no partiality with God for such superficial things. Has He caused you to be born again to this living hope so that there is this therefore in your life? You see, this therefore goes both ways. You most certainly cannot work for your salvation. But know this, your salvation does work. Is there this therefore? Conduct yourself with fear. Means understanding how that therefore works both ways. Even so, children of God, do not forget that this therefore is buried deep in grace. Don't forget the joy and the hope and the love and the faith that surround it. You're not meant to be obsessed with your works. Don't get into that gross introspection where you're constantly looking within to see if you are of the faith. Look to Christ. 
set your hope fully on the grace that is to be yours at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Don't obsess about your works. Obsess about Christ and you'll find the works and the holy living coming out. Longing to hear the Father's well done because your hope is in Christ and the grace that is yours in Him. And so I urge you, therefore, as obedient children, as He who called you as holy, if you call on Him as Father, set your hope fully on the grace that is to be yours at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Be holy in all your conduct. And conduct yourselves with fear throughout your time of exile. Let's pray. Father, your grace saves us. Not just from the guilt, but also the power of sin. And so may our lives be a testimony not to what we do, but to what Christ has done and what He does and what He will do all the way through. All of our hope, every bit out of it, every, every breath of our Christian life is a Spirit-empowered breathing in Christ. And so, Father, we plead your grace and mercy to obey these commands so that all the praise and glory and honor that will come upon us will redound to the glory of Jesus Christ. And in His name we pray. Amen.